Thank you so much and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Heather Arroyo and I'm an attorney at the Political Asylum Immigration Representation Project, which is known as PAIR. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization that provides free legal services to asylum seekers and to individuals who are unjustly detained by ICE. At PAIR, I represent detained immigrants and specialize in removal defense. And today I have the privilege to moderate our discussion about the tensions between federal and state immigration enforcement and how those tensions might be affected during the current change of administration. I wanna thank the Boston Bar Association Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Steering Committee for organizing today's webinar, and especially my colleague, Irene Friedel, who is a member of the committee and took the lead on organizing this panel and inviting our distinguished panelists um, that we have today. I want to quickly introduce each one of our panelists and then I'll, we can move on to this important conversation. I will be saving time at the end. Um, so like it was mentioned earlier, please use the Q&A feature. And when it comes time for our question and answer portion, I will present those questions to the panelists. Um, so I will start by introducing Sarah Sherman Stokes, who is a clinical associate professor at Boston University School of Law, where she teaches immigration law and is the associate director of the Immigrant Rights and Human Trafficking Program. She teaches seminars on core lawyering skills and advanced trial advocacy and supervises students representing newly arrived unaccompanied children facing deportation, refugees fleeing human rights abuses, and other vulnerable immigrants in court and administrative proceedings. Previously, she was also an Equal Justice Works Fellow at, Pair, at the Pair Project, um, where she represented non-citizens in removal proceedings with a special focus on the representation of detained mentally ill refugees. Next, we have Wendy Wayne, who is the director of the CPCS Immigration Impact Unit, which provides training, advice, and litigation support to approximately 3,000 court-appointed criminal defense attorneys throughout Massachusetts. In 2017, she helped shape the litigation that resulted in the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court landmark decision in Lund versus the Commonwealth declaring it unlawful for Massachusetts law enforcement officers to hold non-citizens at the request of federal immigration authorities. And she and several other attorneys filed an unprecedented petition in the Massachusetts SJC, asking the court to issue a historical right of protection to protect non-citizens from arrest while inside a Massachusetts courthouse. Next, we have Laura Rotolo, who is a staff counsel and community advocate at the ACLU of Massachusetts, where she focuses on immigrant rights. She joined the ACLU of Massachusetts in 2007, first as a human rights fellow studying immigration detention conditions, and was part of the legal team that challenged the legality of the largest immigration raid in Massachusetts. Currently, Laura develops and works to pass and implement government policies that protect immigrants at the municipal and state levels. And we have Amy Grunder, who is the Director of State Policy and Legislative Affairs at the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, known as MIRA. The MIRA Coalition is the largest coalition in New England promoting the rights and integration of immigrants and refugees. She leads MIRA's legislative advocacy for the Safe Communities Act and other state legislation promoting immigrant rights, education, health, and safety. And I just wanted to thank everyone um, again for being a part of this conversation today. 
today, again, as I mentioned, we're focusing on the tensions between federal and state immigration enforcement and how we expect them to change through the change of administration. Um, so just as a bit of background, under the Trump administration, we saw an unprecedented assertion of executive power that has been incredibly damaging to our immigrant communities. Through executive branch actions and policies rather than legislation, Trump made significant changes that aimed to criminalize immigrants and further perpetuate a false narrative that all immigrants are a, th a threat to our nation. As a result of his executive orders, we have seen a massive expansion of detention of immigrants. Detention is technically not a punitive measure. It is a civil, not a criminal proceeding. Yet immigrants are held in jails throughout New England and issued uniforms and locked in cells in the same way as others in criminal custody. So whereas prior policies outlined a framework for determining who would be placed in ICE custody, as opposed to using other alternatives to detention like uh, regular check-ins or even GPS monitoring, one of the first acts of President Trump when he took office was to issue an executive order that removes any priorities. In other words, all undocumented immigrants became targets, even if they've lived in the United States for many years, have US born children and have never had a run in with law enforcement. This shift away from enforcement priorities and into blind enforcement has been socially destructive. Now, last month, on January 20th, President Biden issued a number of executive orders that impact our immigration policy, and one that specifically revokes the 2017 executive order issued by Trump creating blind enforcement. So the corresponding DHS memo rescinded and superseded all of the DHS memos issued under Trump to implement his administration policies. It created new interim enforcement policies and it placed a moratorium on virtually all removals um, for 100 days. Now, these changes just recently went into effect, and we are seeing how these changes will be implemented in Massachusetts, what impact they will have, and what challenges we expect. And so to start our conversation, I wanted to um, first start with Sarah to give us a, a bit of an overview of the key legal issues um, we see in terms of federal state supremacy. So um, for you, Sarah, what rights does the federal government have to enforce immigration laws within the states? And what are the limits to those rights? So you know, what rights do states have to either enforce immigration laws or refuse to participate in immigration enforcement? Thanks so much, Heather, and I'm so glad to be here with all of you today at this sort of, um, I think, really consequential moment um, as we transition to a new administration and, you know, think about the hopes we have maybe for this administration and also our continued need to be vigilant um, around what immigration policy looks like. Um, so I have, I guess, maybe the sort of unenviable task of tr trying to give a little bit of a bird's eye view here of um, kind of what role the feds play and, and what role the states play um, and sort of how they work together or don't uh, to enforce immigration law. Um, so I'll start by saying that I think probably what most folks that are attending today already know, which is enforcement of U.S. immigration law was once firmly rooted under the control of the federal government. And in, in, and in some part, it, it remains that way. Um, you know, formally speaking, immigration enforcement constitutes an exclusive federal domain. Um, in contrast to the criminal legal system, uh, where states and localities, you know, um, uh, have their own sort of laws and um, 
and operate their own police and prosecutors and judges, you know, we don't see that in the immigration sphere. Congress defines the exclusive grounds for entry, the exclusive grounds for removal, and the executive branch enforces those provisions through an ex sort of extensive and, and all-encompassing federal bureaucracy. You know, I will note that that did begin to change a little bit after 1996, specifically because um, we had the creation of the 287G program, and, and that refers to Section 287G of the Immigration and Nationality Act, or the INA, um, which became law as part of the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, or IRA-IRA, IRA, of 1996, a sort of notorious omnibus immigration reform. Um, and through this program, through 287G, We've seen thousands of officers in police departments and other local law enforcement agencies that have been trained to arrest and screen suspected unauthorized immigrants. Um, in some ways, 287G to me feels like the proverbial sort of gateway drug. Um, it's, it has opened the door to increasing cooperation between federal and state law enforcement. Um, but so immigration federalism, sort of the, the idea that um, uh, the role that states and localities play in making and implementing immigration law has become increasingly relevant um, since 1996, I would argue. And of course, that's why we're here today, right, is to talk about that. Um, Christina Rodriguez, who's a, an immigration law scholar and professor at Yale, explains that the sort of interactions between state and local involvement in immigration policy are varied, but they can um, sort of fall into two basic categories. Uh, and those are enforcement federalism and integration federalism. And I would um, I would suggest that those are maybe helpful categories of us for us to think about the role that states and the federal government might play um, here. And I'll sort of briefly touch on this, and I know Ben Heather has a couple more questions, but um, enforcement federalism, as the name suggests, concerns the extent to which localities should as assist or resist federal removal policies. And federalism helps shape immigration enforcement policy, you know, for two primary reasons. One that I've alluded to before, which is criminal convictions under state laws constitute the grounds for removal in many cases, right? So state criminal legal systems feed the immigration bureaucracy and the immigration enforcement machine. Um, and then second, though the federal enforcement bureaucracy is, is vast, it does have limitations. And um, it, it consists of a few sort of beat cops that, that interact on a regular basis with the immigrant community and its investigative resources tend to be used for sort of larger scale operations. Um, but to identify, apprehend and remove non-citizens, DHS increasingly relies on the cooperation of local county and state police, right, to, um, to come into contact with non-citizens and bring them to the attention of the immigration sort of machine. Um, now, of course, there are limits. We can talk a little bit about Arizona, the United States, the 2010 Supreme Court decision. Um, you know, I don't wanna get too much into the weeds of like the 10th Amendment here, um, but we all have PTSD from your first year of law school. But, um, but you know, there are some important limits there. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about sort of what this has looked like over the course of the last three administrations in particular um, and how they've um, sort of engaged enforcement federalism. And then the other thing I, I wanna just mention, the other sort of bucket, the other category, I think that's important is integration federalism. And that's those measures that are designed to assist immigrants regardless of their status, to sort of plant roots, to acculturate, to become part of the fabric of our community. Um, and, and for those of us that may want to limit enforcement federalism and, and then may want to increase or enhance integration federalism, I, I think it's helpful to think about those two categories. Um, in terms of what role states can play in assisting or resisting federal immigration enforcement and federal immigration policy.
Great, thank you. And so we've seen how there could be dramatic shifts in policy from one administration to the other. But what are the tensions that exist between federal policy and the enforcement of those policies on the ground level, regardless of who the president is? Right. So, and I, I'll sort of go back to my comment about what we've seen over the course of the last three administrations. And I picked the last three just because um, we're looking at sort of a post-1996 era, um, right? Because that was when we had the creation of 287G. And I think the increased or sort of expanding um, the expansion of immigration enforcement um, into local and, and state um, policing. And so I think, you know, whether we've had a Republican president or a Democratic president, um, we've seen some features of immigration federalism that have remained consistent, right? And, and to the detriment of, of non-citizens, quite frankly. Um, for example, the, the sort of biggest one that comes to mind is information sharing, which is a huge category and can encompass a lot of different things. We could have an entire panel about inf information sharing, but I'll just say briefly that we know that state and local police routinely share information with the FBI um, and the FBI then shares it with the Department of Homeland Security. So even during the Obama administration, where there were efforts to discontinue the so-called secure communities program, um, you know, this feature persisted, right? This kind of information sharing persisted. And I know our speakers are gonna talk a little bit more about things like detainer policy and, and facilitating local cooperation. Um, but I think um, that some of the, getting at sort of the, your question and the tensions, um, there are some things that have remained consistent. Um, and I, my hope is that we have a new opportunity here, although I, I don't wanna be Pollyanna-ish about this, but my hope is that we have a new opportunity here to really revisit whether this is a feature we want to continue. Um, we have good, robust empirical data about the problems and shortcomings of information sharing and the unreliability of this information. Um, and also, I think we have increasing and, and justified concerns about privacy um, sort of alongside that. And you know, this, I hope, can be a moment to, to contend with those in a very real and honest way and think about whether we want to continue that information sharing, because that's a huge feature of cooperation between state and federal law enforcement and has persisted you know, despite uh, who is in, in the White House. And then to what extent do changes of immigration policy that happen on the federal level trickle down to those who are actually tasked with implementing or enforcing those policies? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's something I know we've, all of us on the panel have talked about, um, and I think something that has been increasingly um, concerning to me, right? You know, what happened under the Trump administration did not happen in a vacuum. Um, right, and I think it's irresponsible and short-sighted to, to think otherwise. Um, it was the natural evolution of a, an immigration policy that has been anti-immigrant, racist, and xenophobic for you know, a, over a century. Um, and, but under the Trump administration, you know, line officers, folks that are carrying out these policies on a very micro level day to day, found in President Trump, someone to embolden them, right? Found in President Trump, someone to give some of them voice. You know, they might have had policies or practices they wanted to carry out, but didn't feel um, that they had the power or authority to do until President Trump came into office. And so I think, and I think, you know, that, that's not rocket science. We all have seen that, right? That's not a surprise. Um, I think what's concerning is that despite what happens on a federal level, you know, there will be, and there already is resistance to that on the local micro level, on the sort of folks along the border, um, in different communities across the country of, of people that think, you know, we liked the way things were. I, I vividly, I know we've talked about this of folks on the panel, remember reading, I think it was in the Post, um, Washington Post article of a, 
um, an immigration officer who said, I feel like the shackles are off um, under President Trump, which is sort of an ironic analogy since they're putting the shackles on in immigrants. But, um, you know, he felt like the shackles were off, right? He was finally free to do what he had always wanted to do, which was essentially, you know, to arrest and detain people with reckless abandon. So, you know, the idea that a new president is going to come in and sort of withdraw that authority or put limits on that authority, um, I think is exciting for those of us that are, you know, advocates and, and you know, I would like even more, right? I'm like, I'm an abolitionist, I would like even more, but, but, but it's exciting. But also, um, unfortunately, I think there are some valid concerns about how that will trickle down to folks on the ground and, and the ways in which those policies will or will not be implemented by folks on the ground. And I think the question is, what kind of accountability mechanisms will also be put in place um, to ensure that these policy measures are carried out, that these changes to policy are carried out? Um, if, we, if we really care about them, and if we really take them seriously, and we take the rights of non-citizens seriously, then there has to be some accountability. There has to be some oversight. Um, perhaps there has to be some purging of folks that are in you know working within DHS and ICE, um, or or even something more radical. Um, so, thank you. Um, and now I want to turn to Wendy and just to talk about you know what are the major changes under the Trump administration that have impacted non-citizens in the context of the criminal justice system, and and how were they challenged? Um, thank you for inviting me to this panel. Um, I'm thrilled to be here with um, some of my favorite people in Massachusetts who I um, am working on immigration policies um, and practices for a long time. Um, so I'm honored to be here with all of you. Um, I would say, so the most dramatic change in the, criminal in the criminal legal system was the change in enforcement priorities right from the beginning of the Trump administration. Um, they went from um, having some targeted, you know, the, the idea about, about prioritizing immigration enforcement is that everyone is, um, there, there's not enough, there are not enough resources to deport or remove everyone who's removable from the United States. You hear often people saying there are 11 million or 12 million undocumented individuals. And I don't think that the numbers that people throw around include people who um, are here with lawful status, but are deportable, for example, for criminal convictions. And because the US government can't deport everybody all at once. Um, they prioritize who they're gonna who they're gonna sort of target for immigration enforcement. And under Obama, there were specific uh, priorities. Under the Trump administration, at the very beginning, an executive um, order was issued that said everyone's a priority. Um, everyone who is who is legally removable from the United States is a priority for immigration enforcement. Um, no matter how long they lived here, no matter how minor the charges. Another dramatic change we saw was the increase in courthouse arrests. Um, we had previously seen ICE coming to courthouses to pick people up who were being held on immigration detainers, who were being released from criminal custody. But we rarely saw ICE showing up and arresting people as they were getting out of their cars or as they were walking up the courthouse steps. Um, under the Trump administration, we immediately started seeing at the beginning of that administration, ICE started virtually stalking certain courthouses. You know, Chelsea District Court, they would be outside an unmarked car three days a week, picking people up who many who we heard about were, uh, had been in the US for a long time, were undocumented, had virtually no criminal history, and they were arrested and coming to court on a minor motor vehicle offense. Um, so courthouses began to be seen as a place to fear in immigrant communities, rightfully so. 
And we tried some advocacy with ICE, with ICE and with the courts to try to stop that practice. Um, when that didn't work, we, um, my unit at CPCS brought a 2113 um, to the, a single justice of the SJC um, asking that the case be reported to the full bench. Um, the single justice uh, maybe rightfully said this belongs in federal court. So we then brought a litigation in federal court in US District Court of Mass. Um, along with two district attorneys, Rachel Rollins and Marion Ryan from Middlesex um, and the Chelsea Collaborative. And an injunction was issued on that type of courthouse arrest of um, ICE arresting people who are coming to court on their own power, walking into the courthouse. An injunction was issued in June of 2019. Um, the government appealed and won the appeal in the First Circuit, but because there is still a pending petition for rehearing, the injunction remains in place. Um, I have, I just wanted to talk about a few other things and Heather, I'll just say that my answers to some of your other questions might be shorter. So I may take a little more time answering this question. Um, another dramatic change that we saw were threats of criminal prosecution of court personnel. We had heard rumblings of this around the country. We had heard rumblings of this in Massachusetts. Um, as ICE became more emboldened to stalk the courthouses, to hang out in the courthouses, um, they started pushing, they, they continued to push back on requests and pleas by judges that these arrests were really interfering with access to justice and the administration of justice. And most notably, um, U.S. Attorney Lelling indicted a district court judge and a court officer for obstruction of justice for um, a case that involved somebody that ICE was in the courthouse waiting to arrest. Um, the person after the case was heard went down to lockup, which is a normal way for somebody to get released and ended up escaping out the back door. Um, so this was the first and I believe may still be the only federal criminal prosecution of a judge in the country for um, this type of allegation. Uh, the case is currently on appeal in the First Circuit after a motion to dismiss was denied. Uh, briefing is complete, but there has not yet been a date set for oral argument. And quite frankly, as U.S. Attorney Lelling has just stepped down, um, there's really no word yet on whether the U.S. Attorney's Office will continue this prosecution or not. This prosecution had um, its intended effect of scaring judges and court personnel into sort of standing back and saying to ICE, you know, do whatever you will, just, you know, please leave us out of it. But, you know, if you're going to come into our courthouses, we'll just sort of stand out of the way and try not to help you. Um, other issues that we saw were detainers. Um, we brought some litigation um, and had a decision from the SJC in Lund versus Commonwealth during this administration that said that people cannot, when they have an ICE detainer and they are released from criminal custody, uh, court personnel cannot hold that person to wait for ICE to come get them because that constitutes a new arrest. Um, and then there's also been some litigation, but nothing noteworthy yet on uh, the legality under Massachusetts law of 287G. And, and so you touched on this a little bit as far as that, you know, there is still ongoing litigation. Um, but what are you expecting as far as lingering effects from the Trump's, Trump administration's changes um, or the long-term impacts of those changes? 
I mean, I think that it's going to take a long time for immigrant communities to not fear the criminal legal system and courthouses in Massachusetts and going to police and thinking that, um, you know, trying to report a crime or domestic abuse and worrying that um, police might call ICE on either themselves or a family member. Um, you know, once the criminal legal system in Massachusetts is seen as part of immigration enforcement, I think it's going to take a while to untangle that. And if we untangle it for a few years and then we go back to a Republican administration, for example, that wants to increase enforcement again, you know, at a certain point, if it is the whims of policy and it's hard to keep up, it feels too risky to engage in in the criminal justice system in Massachusetts. I mean, the, the litigation, the Chelsea Collaborative joined our litigation courthouse arrests because they had gotten, uh, for in some part, because they had gotten to the point that um, their clients were so unwilling to go to court to try to right wrongs such as theft by a local individual who had who had embezzled money from a community group that they they had set up and done mediation training at Chelsea Collaborative to sort of set up their own justice system there to try to mediate disputes because people in that community were unwilling to go to court that's going to take a long time um, to undo and I think the other the other thing I wonder about is the litigation. There's been a tremendous amount and very successful litigation in Massachusetts and around the country pushing back on the most aggressive policies of the Trump administration over the last four years. Um, we've made some great strong case law. I'm, I worry a little bit that the, the emboldening of states' rights um, will now be used as you know the, the sort of sympathies have switched um, that we might start seeing that case law from the last four years used to increase um, from anti-immigrant state governments their ability to impact and be involved in federal immigration enforcement. Great, thank you. And I actually wanna jump back to Sarah really quickly um, because we did have a question from the audience about what exactly is 287G? Um, Sarah, if you could just give us a, a little bit of a summary of what it is and what it means. Sure, I'll try to keep it brief, but we can return to it. There's a lot to say. Um, but it basically, as I said, it's a refers to a section of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the immigration law, um, the INA, and it allows DHS to sort of to enter into formal written agreements or memorandums of agreement or memorandums of understanding with state or local police um, departments and to, to deputize uh, state and local enforcement to perform basically the functions that an immigration agent would otherwise perform. Um, and it, it includes, just to give you some concrete examples, these deputized officers, we're talking about, you know, like a local Chelsea police officer or um, or someone like that who is, is not officially trained in immigration, does not work for the federal government, works for the local police. Um, but but he or she could interview individuals to, to learn their immigration status. Uh, they could check DHS databases to see who's in there. They could issue a notice to appear, which is the immigration charging document and officially places someone in removal proceedings and you know, could lead to their deportation. Um, it can transfer a non-citizen into ICE custody. It could issue an immigration detain, or he or she could issue an immigration detainer. So it's a um, many, a sort of a wide variety of, of um, kinds of power that it gives to local law enforcement. Um, and, uh, I think advocates and myself included would argue that these 287G programs have been, you know, um, 
incredibly have you know created and incredibly dangerous conditions because it has disrupted the trust that's been built between local police and communities. Um, you know, people are much less likely to report crimes uh, to, or to come forward if they're victims or witnesses of crimes um, because they don't they worry that you know and rightly so that local law enforcement could uh, enforce immigration laws uh, and it could lead to the deportation of themselves or their family members. So there's a lot more to say, but that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts. Oh, great. Thank you for that answer. Um, and kind of going off of exactly like what happens on the ground, um, back to Wendy, what kind of policy changes have you seen? Are you expecting to see um, in the criminal justice arena under the Biden administration? Um, and what are the implement the challenges to the implementation of those those challenges? Um, so we had thought when we first started talking about this panel that we would have more concrete information available as to what the policies of this administration are going to be um, than we do now. But I can I can tell people what we know so far. Um, so on uh, January 20th, uh, one of President Biden's first executive orders revoked um, the uh, Trump executive order that um, basically created these non-priorities for immigration enforcement that said that everybody is an enforcement priority and sort of the doors are wide open, you know, the federal government is going to go after everybody that it possibly can who might be removable and try to deport them. Um, and so um, on day one of the Biden administration, that policy was revoked or rescinded. And in addition to that, um, DHS, so for people who don't practice immigration law, um, immigration law, all the, the agencies that carry out immigration law all fall within the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. There's ICE, which does immigration enforcement. There's um, Customs and Border Patrol that obviously is at the border um, and at the airports. And then there's CIS, which um, citizenship, sorry, what's the I, immigration services, right? No, <laughs> CIS, I always forget what that stands for. Um, that issues visas and green cards. And, um, and so DHS issued a memo saying these agencies within our umbrella um, are gonna now need to, um, we're rescinding all DHS memos um, that were effective under the Trump administration and tasked DHS and its um, immigration agencies with reviewing any policies or practices regarding immigration enforcement within those three agencies. And pending the completion of a DHS review, the memo created new interim, thank you, Sarah, um, Citizenship and Immigration Services, thank you, I spaced there. Um, pending the completion of um, DHS reviewed the memo created new interim enforcement policies, which became effective on February 1st. And so what that means is that ICE is now supposed to only be targeting the following categories of people. People who have engaged or suspected of terrorism or espionage or necessary to protect the national interest, those apprehended at the border or were not physically present in the US before um, November 1st, 2020. Um, so anyone who comes in after November 1st, 2020, and then for purposes of state, um, you know, the, the intersection of state and, and federal law are um, the enforcement priorities for people involved in the criminal legal system, which targets says that they are only going to pri prioritize people who are incarcerated and released after January 2021 who have been convicted of what's called an aggravated felony. 
and who are determined to pose a threat to public safety. So as opposed to under the Trump administration when everyone was a priority, now it is only supposed to be people who are currently in custody and have what is known as an aggravated felony conviction. I will say that an aggravated felony, although it sounds like it would be a serious crime and it would be a felony, um, it's not always. It's an incredibly broad category of offenses. Um, there are 27 subsets, all which can be incredibly broad. It includes things like a shoplifting with a suspended sentence or larceny of a check with some kind of suspended sentence. Um, and includes everything from that up to, you know, murder and sexual assaults and everything in between. So, but it is only one category of deportable offenses. And um, this, this suggests that the people who will be targeted for immigration enforcement will be much narrower than we saw under the last administration. We have some evidence at this point that ICE is following these guidelines, but we had hoped to have ICE guidance, written guidance by now. Um, there were leaks of a draft memo. Um, at the end of January, we had heard that there was gonna be an ICE memo um, applying interim guidelines by February 1st, but nothing has been issued yet. Um, and we don't know anything yet really about detention or removal proceedings. So the DHS memo said that all parts of immigration enforcement would be reviewed with those priorities I just spoke to in mind, but we don't have any real policies yet. Don't haven't seen anything in writing as to what about people who are currently in removal proceedings, for example, who have no criminal convictions, um, who were arrested on the street, are those, you know, the DHS memo suggests that prosecutorial discretion, um, which is a way to not enforce immigration laws against somebody, um, would, would come into play and should be exercised, but we don't have any evidence of that yet. And I actually wanna um, now uh, turn to Laura, if you could help us just explain to us how the collaboration between ICE and local law enforcement in our cities and, and towns, so on the local level, was first initiated. Sure, hi, thank you again for inviting me to be part of this panel. Always great to be with this amazing group of women um, advocating on behalf of immigrants. Um, and I think when we put this together, we uh, thought it would be a good idea to take this look back a little bit historically, um, how this, this started. And I think in order to do that, I just wanna share one graphic. Um, let me see if I can just do that. Yeah, okay, so this is from The Economist. And this, you know, for everything that happened under the Trump administration, right, which was devastating to immigrants in so many ways, I think it's important to keep in mind just the number of deportations alone, right? Um, for those who maybe didn't live through the Obama administration, you know, doing this work or the Bush administration, Deportations really took off under Barack Obama, right? And under Obama, some people, you know, call him the deporter in chief. But it is true that, um, you know, more people were deported under the Barack Obama administration than any other administration, um, including Trump. And why is that, right? So, in two thousand and six, you see this starting to go up, right? And I think the reason is, and I think we can hopefully all agree on that. It, it really is the cooperation with local and state law enforcement, right? So in 2006, there was a very quiet 
sort of pre-pilot program that some counties around the country signed up for, I think it was called an interim data program. In 2008, secure communities actually started to be piloted um, on its own. And Boston signed up to be one of those very first cities to pilot this program. And secure communities was at the heart of it, this data sharing, right? So anytime somebody is arrested in the United States, they're brought into the police station, they're booked and they're fingerprinted. Well, in order for your local police to know that you, you know, you're you know, arrested in Chelsea. They wanna make sure you don't have an outstanding warrant in Arizona. You're not wanted somewhere else. Who holds that database? That's the FBI. So there's all this data sharing that was already happening, right? At the point of arrest, your fingerprints go to a state repository. Those fingerprints go to the FBI and the police would get back you know, a ping if there was an outstanding warrant. They would get back some information. Secure communities made it so that that information also went directly to the Department of Homeland Security, automatically, directly, without anybody really doing anything. Under the pilot program, states and cities had to, I mean, counties and cities had to opt into that program. And that's what Boston did. They piloted that program. And what they would get back was some information about whether there was a detainer placed on that person, whether there was some outstanding immigration issue. And on the other end, of course, DHS would get that person's information, location, because they were under arrest, and they were able to run it through their own databases. And if there was something outstanding, they could go ahead and issue a detainer. Now, I think Sarah already mentioned this, detainers have existed for a very long time, but it was really under secure communities that detainers began to be used on a very regular basis. Um, and so what we were seeing in 2010 in Boston, the advocates found out that, pilot, that Boston had been piloting this program without any oversight. You know, the city council didn't know about it. It was something that the mayor and at the time um, Commissioner Davis had signed up for. They thought it was a good way to get information to help the feds, right? That's what they told us. Um, but it turns out that they had been, uh, ICE had been issuing detainers against tons of people in Boston and those people were getting deported under this program. Um, eventually, actually, Commissioner Davis did go to Washington and say that he wanted out of this program, but by the time he did, it was too late. And so the rollout of secure communities, because you, some of us will have, you know, PTSD about it because it was such a disaster. This was under Jana Napolitano and Obama's entire theme, of course, was felons, not families. Now we could sit here and debate that. That's for, we could do two hours just on that, right? We, for many reasons, don't think that that's a good strategy. Um, first of all, how do you define what is a felon? Second of all, of course, we believe the criminal legal system should be wholly separate from the immigration system. You should not have to face two penalties for the same um, you know, crime. Um, and then of course, the, the policing of black and brown communities, the over-policing of communities of color uh, is a real issue. So you know, none of us bought the felons, not families thing, but their, their idea was, okay, we're, we're not gonna just go after everybody. We're gonna prioritize, as Wendy said. And we're gonna prioritize people with criminal records and people who are in contact with a criminal justice system. So they were getting two birds in a bush, one stone, whatever that is. They were getting a twofer, right? They were number one, getting all this information from arrests. And number two, saying that they were focusing on people who were criminals, you know, and of course, you can argue that a person who has been arrested has not committed a crime, right? Innocent before proven guilty. And we went through all of that. Um, but it was in line with their messaging around using the criminal legal system. But what happened was that we saw 
most people who were getting deported had no criminal records whatsoever. And so back to sort of Heather's question, the backlash was intense and it was nationwide. And so what we saw were, was tons of litigation, like civil lawsuits against cities and counties, because of course, who was holding the person on a detainer? It was the locality, right? ICE would issue a detainer and for 48 hours and sometimes more, um, the city would hold you on behalf of ICE. And so we saw a rash of litigation challenging the constitutionality of these detainers. Um, and we saw the real life impact. So this is why in Wendy's case, you know, the plaintiffs are not just the public defenders, it's also the district attorneys. It's not something that you see every day. District attorneys and law enforcement were saying in some places that this was really affecting their work, that they people weren't coming forward to report crimes, to be witnesses, because they feared that any contact with police would land them in this pipeline to deportation. Um, and in 2010, when the advocates in Boston found out that this was happening, we did embark on a massive public education campaign to let people know, you know, what to expect. If you are arrested in the city of Boston, it's possible that, you know, there'll be a detainer placed on you and that you'll be put into this pipeline. And so people were aware of it. Um, and, you know, it was happening everywhere. And then because the rollout was such a mess, first uh, DHS said that you could opt in and then they said that you could opt in, but then not opt out. And then eventually they just rolled this out to the entire nation um, without people's, um, without any locality's ability to either opt in or opt out. And it's just, it's just a thing, right? And nobody could opt out of it. Um, and so in, because there was such backlash from everywhere, in 2014, the Obama administration rescinded, um, ended secure communities and replaced it with something that they called PEP, the Priority uh, Enforcement Program. We could do another hour on that. It's, it moved from these threat levels to these other categories of people who they would prioritize. Um, you know, we did it did give people some sort of guidelines. So there's that, but we, you know, I think all of us had issues with the guidelines themselves, um, but it did end secure communities. Unfortunately, the part that did not end was the data sharing that continued. And so uh, there was less of a use of, of detention detainers. Instead, the Obama administration asked for notice that a person was gonna be released instead of detention. By that time, of course, into, uh, later we had the Lund decision and other places either by policy or by legislation or by lawsuit had stopped um, had stopped holding people on detainers. And then I'll show one other chart, which is what happened when PEP, um, this is from the, the Syracuse uh, track website. So you'll see, you know, these are apprehensions, these are not, um, deportations, but they are arrests. This is the beginning of the Obama administration. And then 2014 PEP uh, goes into place and you see a massive drop in arrests. And this is what Trump inherited, right? So by the time Trump came into office, many localities were no longer cooperating with detention, which is why there are, you know, one of the reasons there are fewer deportations under the Trump administration than there were um, in the first year of the Obama administration, because by then the backlash was so intense um, that many places had stopped cooperating or, you know, uh, you know, situations like ours where under the Lund decision, we simply cannot hold people on detainers. So I hope that gives sort of a little background. No, that was great. Thank you so much. Um, and so how would you best kind of or what would you expect to change about the way that our municipalities work with or respond to federal immigration policies under the Biden administration? Um, 
or in other words, like what can be gained at this point? There's still much to gain. I think, you know, localities are all over the map on this, even in Massachusetts. We have four 287G contracts in Massachusetts still, where we have local officials deputized as ICE um, agents, right? They could carry out some of the, uh, the, the jobs, the duties of an ICE agent. Um, we still have those in our city and we, in, our, in our state. We are the only state in New England that has those contracts and it really is time to get rid of them. Um, and then of course we have cities and towns that while they may not be holding people on detainers, can certainly pick up the phone and call ICE whenever they want to because there's nothing stopping them. We have municipalities that will ask people about their immigration status when they encounter members of the public. Um, these are incredibly damaging to trust in the in police, trust in law enforcement, uh, community relations. And so we still have a ways to go in terms of making sure that our cities and towns in Massachusetts um, do not collaborate with ICE in any way. They shouldn't be lifting a finger or spending a dime, as we like to say, to, to help ICE deport our friends and neighbors. Thank you. Um, and now turning to Amy, um, my first question is just what impact has the last four years of the Trump administration's immigration policies had on our immigrant community on a statewide level, so in Massachusetts? Yeah, so I, I also want to thank everyone for the opportunity to be here. It's a great privilege to be here with, with the other panelists as well. Um, so um, my organization is a membership organization, so we have 130 organizational members. So a lot of the information about what happens on the ground comes from our more grassroots members. And, you know, as, as, as I think everyone is pretty much aware, the last four years have had a profound impact on immigrant communities, especially mixed status families with undocumented members. You've heard a lot about this today already, um, the dramatic increase in courthouse arrests, detentions, uh, a really visible ICE presence in immigrant communities in Massachusetts and also widespread rumors of raids. Everyone became, you know, especially in the early days of the Trump administration, people would see a transit official and, and there'd be, you know, go out on Facebook, Facebook that there was a, you know, that there was, um, that ICE was riding the orange line, those kinds of things. Um, from the perspective of our member organizations, two policies in particular, um, were hugely impactful in a negative way. One of them obviously was the indiscriminate enforcement, um, plus the perception and the reality of state and local law enforcement collaboration, you know, which we've been talking about. Um, this made immigrants more vulnerable to workplace exploitation and to crime because of the belief that accessing police or court protection would lead to deportation. This fear was always present in these you know, years of collaboration under secure communities, but it became much worse under the Trump administration. Plus, you know, it was a very vocal rhetoric surrounding all of this too, which people heard, obviously. Um, private employers and landlords felt empowered also to report people to ICE. We learned of people afraid to report workplace safety violations, rats in their buildings, domestic violence, you, you name it. Um, people um, you know, being unwilling to come forward for protection. Um, the other big um, policy, uh, impactful policy was um, the change in the public charge rule. I think most people, maybe most people are at least a little bit familiar with this rule in this, in this audience. Um, the administration greatly expanded the criteria for finding that an applicant for a visa or a green card was inadmissible because they're deemed likely to become a public charge. The criteria is broadened now to include 
uh, receipt of Medicaid, SNAP, federal housing assistance, but also consideration of a range of other factors, including age, health status, ability to speak English, et cetera. Um, when this rule was leaked in early 2017, it's almost as if the leak caused as much damage as the issuance of the final rule. Um, in 2017, providers in our network reported a wave of disenrollment from MassHealth and other benefits programs because people were afraid of immigration consequences of losing, and, and even immigrants who were in no way subject to the rule, like immigrants without status at all, that were not getting a green card anytime soon, but became afraid that somehow in the future they would be jeopardizing their chance to get one. So. And, and there was also a lot of, there still is a lot of misinformation about what it applied to. People were um, not willing to go to food pantries, to WIC programs, which aren't subject at all to the rule. So the general impact of all of this was kind of a withdrawal from um, avoidance of public authorities and, and a withdrawal from, from interaction with both public and sort of pseudo public authorities, including um, medical institutions unfortunately, um, people withdrawing not just from MassHealth, but also afraid of information sharing again, because in so many of the countries where um, immigrants in, in our state come from, the government runs hospitals. So if you go to the hospital, there's this fear that somehow they're gonna share information with ICE and that's had a real impact. And what are the state level efforts um, that exist with regard to the immigration enforcement program in Massachusetts? So obviously some of this has been alluded to. Um, um, the ACLU in particular, Laura here has been um, very active in um, working with um, municipalities to um, institute their own protections, the cities and towns um, to protect, basically not to protect, you can't really protect immigrants from ICE, but what you can do is end that local um, collaboration that we've been talking about. And then on the state level, beginning back in, um, 2013, um, there was the introduction of the Trust Act. Um, and that legislation was aimed specifically at ending um, the use of um, ending law enforcement um, co cooperation with detainer requests coming from ICE. And that was introduced in 2013 for the first time. It went that session also 2015, really didn't get any traction at all. And then Trump was elected. And when Trump was elected, suddenly, this is sort of the weird silver lining of the Trump administration, is suddenly immigration um, became, immigration policy, state and local and federal became a public issue in a way, it was on the public radar in a way it never had been before. Um, and suddenly everyone was paying attention to it. So there was a lot of support for legislation like this. And we worked um, with other advocates, Amira, ACLU and others, um, to um, broaden that trust act. And, and, and that was the create led to creation of the Safe Communities Act in 2017. So, and that would aim more, that was much broader. It was based on the California um, Values Act. I'm not quite as comprehensive as California's way ahead of us always, um, but it was, um, and it included a, a prohibition on detainers because at that time the, the Lund decision hadn't come through yet. That was later the same year. So, so you saw, you know, because of, um, because federal enforcement has had to, has come to rely so much on state and local collaboration, the place where states have leverage is, um, is on ending that, right? Um, the other thing is, I'm trying to think of other stuff 
you know, oh yeah, there's other legislation. Um, so that, so the Safe Communities Act has been filed 2017, 2019 has just been filed again. Um, another bill filed over the same period targets the 287G um, program specifically as does the Safe Communities Act. Um, that's from New Bedford representative um, uh, Tony Cabral down in Sheriff Hodgson's uh, neck of the woods. Um, and then there's also other legislation, um, legislation to increase access to the federal T and U visa programs by streamlining, again, by impacting local law enforcement procedures, <laughs> some guidelines to encourage that. And then on the integration federalism end, to quote Sarah earlier, there's a lot, there's always been a lot of legislation in Massachusetts there. Um, th and also last year, last session, the reintroduction of driver's license legislation is a really big one. Um, the Work and Family Mobility Act. There's also been perennial efforts um, or continuing efforts to get um, have um, to give undocumented um, immigrants access to in-state tuition. Um, there's also been um, there's Massachusetts has also stepped in to extend benefits to immigrants um, ineligible for federal assistance because of status, like particularly in healthcare and housing. So that's the kind of thing that you'll see on the state level. Again, we can't do anything about, you know, what the federal government has full authority over immigration, but we don't have to help them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so that's where our efforts are focused. And could you describe just a little bit more about what the Safe Communities Act is and what it's really intended to accomplish? Yeah, so the, kind of the, the simplest way to think about it is that it would limit the participation of police, courts, and correctional facilities all under law enforcement in um, immigration enforcement, and also create some additional safeguards for immigrants who are in state and local custody. Um, it does this in four ways. Um, one is it prohibits law enforcement officials from inquiring about immigration status unless required by law. Um, which it isn't, <laughs> um, there's an exception for magistrates in that provision. But the idea, what's interesting about this provision is um, most the, the police who, police chiefs who work in immigrant communities are already, um, already refrain from asking questions about immigration status because the last thing they want is for immigrants to be afraid to, you know, they need, they need to be able to work in immigrant communities. It's a big part of where their law enforcement efforts are focused in protecting those communities. And so um, many, many police will tell you they're already doing that, but it's not uniform across the state. So that's the benefit of having statewide legislation. The second thing it does is it creates a kind of civil um, Miranda warning for immigrants who are in local custody. So, you know, as many know here, ICE officials regularly visit our jails and prisons to identify people for deportation. And what the Safe Communities Act does is it requires written consent um, before any ICE interview can take place. And it ensures that people in local custody are informed in writing by, by police with a uniform form that would be designed by the Attorney General, um, with our help, of course, um, to make sure that people in local custody are informed in writing of the purpose of the interview and of their right to decline it or have their own attorney present because one of the things that we're hearing is that people are being pressured to sign their own deportation orders, right? And so people have no idea what their rights are. Um, and the third thing it would do is it would, it would really protect access, help protect access to justice in our courts by prohibiting law enforcement from affirmatively notifying ICE of someone's pending release from custody, say on, you know, on bail. 
Um, and the only exception is at the end of a sentence of incarceration. Um, and that was more of a strategic part of that provision. And one of the things that we, we believe is that that's kind of when ICE knows anyway that the person is gonna be released. Um, but current practice um, undermines our court system, right? Because it encourages ICE to take custody of people before they've had their day in court and it denies justice to victims and also to defendants. Um, and then the last um, big operative provision is that it would end 287G agreements, the ones, the agreements we've been talking about. Um, in Massachusetts, we have, um, well, in all of the country now, they've backed away from the, um, what's called the task force model and it's more of a correctional, um, it's, it's an agreement with correctional officials. Um, that's my understanding. I don't know if anyone here um, wants to, to weigh in. Um, I'm almost done with this, but um, Massachusetts, you know, as, as it has been pointed out, um, in Massachusetts, <clears throat> we are the only state in New England that has these agreements. We have them with correctional facilities here. There are four, one with Plymouth, Barnstable and Bristol County sheriffs each, and then also with the Department of Corrections. And I'd also point out that the only other states whose Department of Corrections have 287G agreements are Georgia, Florida and Arizona. So these are strange bedfellows for a state like ours that prides itself on being a champion of, of civil rights. Um, and as Sarah said, these agreements damage the relationship between immigrant communities and law enforcement, they encourage racial profiling, and they're currently um, under, we haven't mentioned this yet, but they're currently under legal challenge as a violation of state law under the Lund decision. And that's a case being brought by, um, well, the lead plaintiff is, a, is the NAACP of Massachusetts and it's being brought by, um, uh, wait, I'm blanking, Lawyers for Civil Rights. And I'm not sure, um, Wendy, if your organization is also involved in that, seems like you always are. <laughs> Do you wanna weigh in here? <laughs> no, we're not involved in this one. We had a prior one that was dismissed, but All right. we're not involved in this particular one. Okay, thanks. So to sum up, uh, you know, the legislation won't um, stop ICE from doing its job and it won't stop police and courts from doing their job but it will stop police, uh, police and courts from doing ICE's job. Right. And we actually have a, a good question from the audience that um, I wanted to get to anyway, is just that, um, you know, how much support is there in the state legislature to end cooperation with DHS or ICE? And what can we as individuals do to lobby to end cooperation? Okay, so yeah, that's, um, that's one of the challenges. <laughs> <laughs> of, of um, getting anything. So, so there's lots of different ways of talking about this, but um, you know, there are, passing state legislation is really hard, right? The average um, trajectory for getting state legislation passed is um, like six to 10 years. So we're now on our third iteration of the Safe Communities Act. And if you wanna count the Trust Act before that, this is the fifth iteration. So we're at 10 years now, right? Um, so, but you know, things I, that said, we've made some significant progress. Um, so I guess, I guess, could you repeat the question specifically again? Because I think it, I think you had wanted to ask me about this in a more general way also. Yeah. So just generally, what are the challenges to passing, you know, the Safe Communities Act and others? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. So. Um, the challenge, the biggest challenge with getting the Safe Communities Act um, passed, it's kind of is, is Governor Baker. 
So Governor Baker has um, promised to veto the Safe Communities Act. And the way that that impacts state legislation is that particularly on the House side, um, there's been a reluctance to bring bills to the floor for a vote unless they could survive a, a, gover a governor's veto, right? So that's why you don't see a lot of legislation moving forward. Now we have a new speaker now and we're, we're looking to see whether, you know, there's some rumors that this speaker may be more willing to bring things to the floor. But the issue is, is that, so that means you need 105 legislators, right? And the, the, the way that that, the other challenge is um, the geographic concentration of immigrants in, in our cities, particularly gateway cities, but also including Boston, also means that many of our immigrant-based organizations and grassroots organizations are also in those cities, right? And, and for the most part, their legislators are on board with legislation like this. The problem is when you get out to Worcester County, you get into Plymouth County, um, you get to the Cape instead of the Outer Cape, you know, other parts of the Cape, you get to um, even areas west of Springfield, for example, in these areas, we don't have a lot of um, presence. And so, you know, in the end, legis state legislation is about getting state legislators on board with your program. And the only way you can push it through without doing that slog of outreach to, you know, which is harder when you don't have that ground network, right? Is if you have a big public um, outpouring of support, like we saw, for example, on police reform, right? That you didn't see them worrying about whether they got a majority or not, but you also saw that the governor weighed in and tried and, and made some changes to the bill, right? Because they didn't have a veto-proof majority, but it came to the floor in a hurry because there was so much public support. We saw something similar in 2018 um, at sort of the height of, of, of Trump's war on immigrants um, when there was family separation at the border. Everyone remembers that, right? In June, 2018, we, um, our coalitions, you know, the Safe Communities Coalition was able to um, get three of the provisions of the Safe Communities Act into the Senate budget and passed. And the only reason that happened is because we had thousands of people in the street again. We, we brought 3,000 people into the state house one day, <laughs> right, right in that month of June, because we, we had envisioned a small demonstration of 200 and, and 3,000 people showed up because of the public outrage. So those are two, um, those are the challenges. Um, we have, uh, uh, we have legislation that's seen as controversial because it's immigration, right? It is controversial. Um, we have a, a conservative state legislature, which is mainly made up of conservative Democrats. Um, and, um, and the last thing I would say is ironically, um, for this session, we have the Biden administration because now we're already starting to hear from legislators that, well, we don't need to do this because Biden's gonna fix everything, right? And, and some of that's because we obviously leveraged the Trump outrages um, to advance the bill right? Um, some of our messaging, a lot of our messaging talked about Trump, um, obviously. Um, but on the other hand, now, so the flip side of that is now, now Biden's here, so we don't have to do anything. And so now we have to work to disabuse people of that notion, because of course, we can't have, immigrants need certainty. And we can't have a situation where um, for example, 287G is, uh, is in the statute, right? It's in the Immigration and Nationality Act. It won't change without congressional action. This administration could decide not to um, involve itself with those. It, could, it can withdraw from those agreements. But what happens in four years? We have no idea. 
And we also haven't seen any sign from the Biden administration that they want to end state and local collaboration with immigration enforcement, right? We, we saw the DHS memo. They're still contemplating priority enforcement, although way narrower. There's still that public safety component that would engage local law enforcement. And we've seen nothing. Um, we've, we've heard talk during the campaign of, of Biden saying we're going to um, you know, cut down on um, 287G agreements. We're going to put them sort of in the backseat, but not end them. And um, there was some remark that they would keep the ones from before the Trump administration. Guess what? That includes um, that includes at least Bristol County and I believe Plymouth County agreements as well. So, um, so that's a big challenge, an unexpected one. I mean, we're of course we're all like thrilled uh, at the defeat of Trump and the embrace of you know this of of the um, embrace of immigrants really by the Biden administration, but it, it does present some challenges. If I could just for a second, um, I saw also in the chat that somebody was asking, how can they help pass the Safe Communities Act, which of course is the question that we love to get all the time. Um, I know that we are currently seeking co-sponsors, right? So people should ask their rep to co-sponsor and I can put also a link to the petition, um, the Action Network petition. Yeah, right? thank you, Laura. Anything else that we should let them know about, Amy? Well, you know, there is, I, if, for, if people are, you know, part of organizations, um, if you want to get more involved, there's always, you know, you can always work with the coalition, right? Um, affirmatively, your organization, um, you know, if you have a local organization that you work with, you know, we'd be super welcome. But um, yeah, right now there's a co-sponsorship drive. And in the end, I mean, the other thing we need help with is like, we need to talk to speak to, with, if you have relations with law enforcement, relationships with law enforcement, like um, one of the things that state legislators, um, one of the main people they listen to is their, is their um, local law enforcement, right? Um, so, I mean, I invite anyone to get in touch with me um, if they have resources like that. And I'm putting my, oh yeah, where do I put my, um, I don't know if I can drop, where do I drop my, I guess in the Q and A, right? <laughs> um, type answer, here we go. I'm just gonna put it in. Um, feel free to get in touch with me, um, but yeah. It's tough. Uh, the, right now, like the hardest thing is really the slog of getting um, folks on board who are um, getting legislators on board who don't have a lot of immigrants in their district. And that's going to be it's we have to do it kind of the old fashioned way because we're not going to have the outpouring of public outrage that we had. And part of this like 10 year process of getting this passed is just building support one representative at a time, right? Um, I think we're we're mostly concerned about the house at this point. Um, so just one at a time, we have to build there, we have to educate them, right? And then Amy, were you telling me at the beginning of this session, you know, I said, well, how are we, you know, refiling this? What's the support? And you said, remember, you know, Five years ago, people didn't understand these issues. It was it was a matter of actually educating the public legislators on like what a detainer is, and we have all these prezies and powerpoints and charts like this is how it works, um, and just getting over that hurdle that you know people see immigration as a federal issue, and it's not super easy or intuitive to understand that the state actually does play an important role, and that there's something very important that we can do as uh, you know, that our state legislature can do. So even just getting over that, um, I think a lot of legislators understand that very well now. We have some new legislators that are excited about it as well. So I think bit by bit, we're gonna continue to build support for this and hopefully eventually pass it. Yeah, we and we got it out of committee last year, remember? We did, for the first time. 
<laughs> so yeah, and 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 um, uh, Representative Ch um, Carlos Gonzalez is now the House Chair of the Public Safety Committee. Yay! So <laughs> that's really good news. And, and I would just I I agree with all of those things. And I'm not the, the legislative or policy wonk on this on this uh, panel by any means. So take this with a grain of salt. But I would just also add, you know for even if it's not at the state level at the local level there are things we can do remember you know we care not just about enforcement we also care about integration right so there's sort of two sides of this coin and you know there's a boston mayoral race happening right now um show up to those events with mayoral candidates ask them questions of what they're going to do to make this a city that not only keeps immigrants safe but also values and celebrates in immigrant communities um you know go to you know wherever you are in massachusetts i'm here in boston so i'm thinking about the boston mayoral race but um there's local races happening all over and, and you can show up and be a presence and ask hard questions um and and really hold you know local politicians accountable for what they can do to, to provide support and integration for immigrant communities as well. Thank you all for that. And I think that really sums up a lot of different ways that we could, you know, really maintain the sense of urgency, um, you know, for, uh, for changes and especially for under a new administration. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's at this point, we've seen a lot of, you know, we're still waiting for a lot of this to unfold, but I would kind of just open this up to anyone about what's really missing at this point from Biden's executive actions as it relates to the ongoing impacts of Trump's policies, um, you know, on the state and municipal level. Um, I would just say the first thing that jumps to mind is detention. Um, we haven't seen anything yet on what um, the Biden administration intends to do with all the people who are in civil immigration detention. People don't realize that um, immigration proceedings are civil, they're not criminal, and people are held in prisons. They are held in the exact same types of facilities with the same kind of of um, barbed wire and locked doors and solitary confinement and restrictions on liberty and conditions, sometimes worse than local prisons, um, as people who've been charged with the most serious criminal offenses. Um, and notably, one of the executive orders that came out um, so far from the Biden administration is no longer using um, no longer using private prisons uh, in the in the federal criminal system, but there was a um, very noticeable omission for not using private prisons uh, in the civil immigration system, and that is a lot of there are companies that have made millions and millions of dollars that have taken spaces in the middle in in very rural parts of the United States where there is zero access to lawyers. It's hours and hours from immigration court um, where um, private prison companies are making a lot of money detaining people, again, not for crimes, but for civil immigration violations. So I would say that's the most glaring to me. I completely agree with Wendy, 100%, um, and it's a huge oversight. Um, and, and I would just add to it, you know, we're in the midst of you know many pandemics some of them longer standing than others but the newest being covid and, and under covid you know we've seen the release of many folks in ice custody and guess what we've all stayed safe it's been okay right so you know we started at the beginning of the pandemic we had 45,000 persons being held in ice custody on any given day by the end of 2020 as the pandemic was spiking that number dropped to just 20,000 
And I say, I, I don't mean to say just, those are 20,000 people that I personally don't believe deserve to be there. But it was cut more in, than in half. It was, you know, it went down by more than 50%. And there are no documented negative impacts of this reduction. So there's no reason we can't continue to rely even less on immigration detention. Um, previously in the 80s, there was a presumption of release, not a presumption of detention. We can go back to that and we should go back to that. And, you know, I, I think President Biden and his administration should take seriously, you know, if not wholesale abolition, which I think we're probably a little far away from, um, at least a, a recognition that alternatives to detention work um, and that people show up at their hearings. The, the biggest um, empirical study about whether or not immigrants show up to their hearing um, just came out and it shows, you know, um, like something like over 90% of folks show up to their hearings. Our clients want to go to their hearings. Um, and of course, what they mo want most of all is to have, you know, counsel and notice and, and a fair a fair shot. Um, so I, I completely agree with Wendy that we need um, specific attention to the detention system that we currently have. Right, thank you. Um, we did have another question come in um, and maybe Laurie could answer this one that said, how were more people deported by Obama when Trump expanded enforcement priorities? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's an excellent question because you would think, right, that there would, I mean, we all expected that, that you know, there would be a skyrocketing of deportations. I think it's a complicated um, answer. There are many factors, I think. Number one, um, you know, Trump inherited a situation in which many localities were already not cooperating or helping with detainers and otherwise collaborating with ICE. So at the end of the Obama administration, there had been this backlash, you know, they had ended secure communities um, and there were already fewer localities that were doing this work of holding people on behalf of ICE and helping them deport people. So I think that that's one factor. Also, um, deportations just take a long time to wind their way through the court system and there's this huge backlog. Um, so that also contributes to how fast, you know, maybe people are getting arrested, but how quickly that they could actually be put on a plane and deported, that takes time. And, you know, Trump didn't have, you know, eight years. He had, I don't know, three years and then campaigning. I, I don't know. Um, of course, the pandemic at the end of the, you know, the last year of the Trump administration really, you know, made deportations more difficult. Even just the act of putting somebody on a plane was not that easy anymore. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that that's, that's most of them. But also, let's not forget that the Trump administration's focus, you know, despite all the rhetoric, despite all the hateful, hateful, you know, xenophobic rhetoric, they were also really focused on just keeping people out, right? So what's the first thing that happened under Trump was the travel ban, right? And then the decimation of um, the asylum, um, you know, avenues, refugees, asylum, the remain in Mexico, all of that, you know, the, the visas that were, um, you know, also affected. The, the, one of the main focus, which we did not see under Obama, was um, to keeping people out, decreasing those ways that people could come here legally, and even for people at the border, for them to even enter the country. Right, and we still have tens of thousands of people who are at the border right now, you know, the Biden administration has responded saying that they are going to start, you know, processing that they're ending remain in Mexico, but it still leaves thousands of people who are just stuck in these really dangerous conditions, um, who are just, you know, here to seek asylum and have never even been able to give themselves the proper due process, you know, that they should be afforded. 
Um, and this is a more general question for for everyone. So anyone could jump in if if they feel um, like they have a response to it. But what is it that we can do to protect non-citizens from Trump-like policies in the future? You know, in in you know, we've seen how this has kind of ebbed and flowed. And so what is it that we can do now? State legislation. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna echo that actually. Um, um, I think that, you know, what we've learned in litigation over the last four years is that many issues regarding what federal immigration officials can do within the state, within the state criminal legal system, for example, needs to, in, that involves some state co cooperation has to be condoned not only by federal law, but it's also gotta be consistent with state law. So in the enabling, the, in the statute that in 287G, the language in 287G says consistent with state law. Um, we don't have law that specifically says 287G agreements are okay. We also don't have legislation that or law that says 287G agreements are not okay. Um, one of the questions in the courthouse arrest litigation has been what is state law on this issue? Is does state, um, does Massachusetts recognize that there's this privilege who, for people who are coming to court um, to not be civilly arrested on an unrelated matter? Um, when it comes to detainers, the issue in the Lund case um, was that, um, that it's considered a new arrest. If you hold someone on an immigration detainer, it's considered a new arrest. Um, and there is no state law that authorized that arrest. So on the flip side, if we want to, if, if Massachusetts um, wants to have some um, you know, we've seen the destructive impact that cooperation and sort of overpowering of the federal government can have in forcing the state and local law enforcement to participate in immigration enforcement and suffer those negative impacts on access to justice, on the administration of justice. Um, and so regardless of who is in power in DC, if Massachusetts has clear law that, that state sort of allows it to say, this is what's okay with us and this is what's not. We're not willing to participate in immigration enforcement. Um, that will go a long way towards, uh, that will prevent immigration enforcement uh, cooperation if we have a more, um, you know, if we go back to a Trump-like administration policies, it will stop the kind of ebb and flow and the, and the sort of, um, uh, what's that expression, the, the back and forth, the whiplash effect that all of us are feeling and that immigrants are feeling of now it's safe, now it's not. And it allow Massachusetts to sort of set its own destiny that we, you know, under we have the power to control our criminal legal system. We don't want immigration enforcement to interfere with that. And so we're making this very clear. And I totally agree with Amy that that needs to be done by legislation. Great. And then we have another um, question from the audience of how um, does Plymouth County and Bristol County benefit from housing ICE detainees? I can start on that. I mean, I think yeah. we would say they do not benefit, right? Depends on what you mean by benefit. Um, because obviously the downside of that um, is, is enormous, right? Um, so the detention contract itself is called an intergovernmental service agreement and they do get a per day per detainee uh, fee from the federal government for that. 
it's unclear whether there's any profit in that because the, the way that the state reports, that the counties report to the state how much money they're spending per detainee, um, it just it's it's hard to it, it's hard to parse that out from all the other people detained in the in the facility, and it's really hard to figure out. Um, we believe that it's possible that they actually spend more than they get back. Um, I don't I don't have the data though because like I said the reporting is just it doesn't match up easily. Um, so but they do get a per day, uh, you know, a per day sort of reimbursement. I don't know if people want to add to that. I would just add that in um, for for um, facilities that also have a 287G agreement, it gives them a financial incentive to um, <laughs> to to place people into um, custody yeah. if if indeed they do make any profit at all. But I think it, we should be clear. Thank you for Amy for that um, sort of reminder that the detention contract is very separate from the 287G contract. So we have detention. We have places that like Franklin County Jail that holds people uh, on a detainer, uh, detention contract, but they don't have a 287G. A 287G deputizes local officials to do that work. And it's very often tied to the jail, right? It's like at Bristol County, you would find a Bristol County uh, House of Corrections employee who is also deputized under the 287G program. Um, and so we'll book people in as ICE detainees, can ask them questions, as Sarah said, can fill out a you know, notice, uh, an NTA um, can do all that work for ICE. What we really have been advocating against is those 287G contracts. It's free labor for ICE that we pay for, right? Um, and it's it's got very negative effects on the community. The detention contracts are a little bit separate because, you know, there is this sort of whack-a-mole problem where you shut down one detention center, they just open one up somewhere else, right? What we want to do is we want to decrease detention across the board. We want to make sure that there are fewer people, fewer people who are in ICE, you know, deportation proceedings actually detained because, and in fact, there was this, um, um, a study that recently came out about just how high the, the response rate is. If you are not in immigration detention, how often you do show up to your court hearings, um, really calling into question this whole idea that people need to be detained in order for them to show up at their immigration court hearings. And there's a follow-up question here that says, should we be lobbying the county governments to stop detaining immigrants? I mean, you touched on it a little bit and you know, from our experience too, we've seen how um, when Suffolk County ended their contract with ICE, um, it, it just meant that another facility that is arguably um, harder, uh, harsher on immigrants and also definitively harder for, you know, attorneys who are in Boston or, or people who are um, practicing to get to those facilities um, over, you know, the a facility that's right kind of in, in the center of Boston where there's multiple ways to get to that facility. Um, but I don't know if there's other thoughts about how, about you know, what we, it is that people should be lobbying for. Well, I, I would say, first of all, we don't have county government in Massachusetts. So what you're really talking about is lobbying the particular um, facility or the, you know, the, the sheriff that runs that house of correction or, um, or the state for in the case of the DOC. But um, yeah, in terms of, um, I, I just also wanted to point out was that one of the things that we left out of the Safe Communities Act for the reasons that were just mentioned was we left out a prohibition of these um, detention contracts for those very reasons that we didn't wanna see people 
you know, shipped off to Texas or Maine. I believe like when they, when they ended the contract in Suffolk County, didn't they end up in Maine or something? Um, super not helpful. Um, and yeah, I agree that we just, what, what is helpful is to encourage our state legislature to, to, to get, to stop um, assisting the federal government in deporting and detaining immigrants in that way. Um, well, thank you, everyone. I we only have a couple minutes left, so if there's final thoughts, I kind of can leave the floor open. Um, but I do want to just um, thank all of our panelists um, for your contributions. I think that this has been a really helpful conversation, um, and we are very grateful for that. Um, again, if there's, I will leave the floor open, and if there's more questions, um, our participants can use the the question and answer feature, um, but otherwise I'll open it up if the panelists have any kind of final thoughts. I could just say that, you know, this issue, thank you for holding this panel because I think this issue is just as alive as ever. Unfortunately, um, we have, you know, we're so thankful and um, we're so happy with, you know, the initial changes that are happening under the Biden administration so grateful to the decades of advocacy that have brought us to this moment because you know those were not created in a bubble right it was advocates day in day out fighting for these changes um but this issue of state and local collaboration is just as alive as ever so i would say um please if you if you are interested in helping with the safe communities act uh, please sign that petition and let Amy or me know and we can plug you in. If you're interested in doing something at your very local level, um, I'll be holding a very small convening of people who are interested in doing that um, in March. So um, please feel free to get, you know, get in touch with me. Uh, there are dozens of communities in Massachusetts that have passed local policies against collaboration with ICE and we hope to pass dozens more in this administration as well. I would just say thank you so much to the BBA and, and Heather for moderating. And um, it's just such a joy to be on a panel with such all these brilliant women uh, doing incredible work. And and um, I would just echo Laura and say, you know, now is not the time for complacent to be complacent, um, right? You know, we have a new administration, and I think there's exciting possibilities for where we can go. But you know, at least from where I sit, um, and I, I think folks on this panel probably share this, a return to the status quo of where we were pre-Trump is not progress. Um, and we need to think bigger and more creatively um, if we really care about protecting immigrant communities and, and advancing immigrant communities. Yeah, I wanna share um, um, off of what Sarah just said that I think that, um, that um, under Obama, there was in order in the sort of zeal um, to, um, to pass comprehensive immigration reform to help certain immigrants. There has been for a long time, sort of a pitting or a, a, a pushing for good immigrants versus bad immigrants. And I think this is really the time to push back against that, that um, you know, we have learned that people involved in the criminal justice system have been, you know, after years of over-policing and racial profiling and the structural racism that exists in that system and the war on drugs, people, so many immigrants who have been involved in the criminal legal system are now in removal proceedings because of the racism that occurred um, and the, un, the unjust policies of the criminal legal system. And there should not be, you know, we need to, we need to lift up and, and protect and fight for all immigrants. Um, and I wanna add my, my uh, 
thank you for inviting me to this panel. It's been great to speak with all of you and hear everybody's thoughts. Great, well, thank you all so much. Um, we have hit our time limit, um, but I just wanna thank everyone um, for your contributions and thank you to everyone who's who has participated. Great, thank you everyone so much. Bye, have a great rest of your day.